Before we begin, and I suppose the lawyers among us are already calling me on that and saying, well, we have begun. Technicality, you know what? Leave me alone. Give a guy a chance. Speaking of giving a guy a chance, I have a Patreon campaign that I'm really hoping that you'll have a look into, give some consideration to. It's essentially a way that you can subscribe to this podcast um, financially. You can um, commit, you know, one or two dollars a month even, uh, more if you'd like to. And if you do want to do that, there are a lot of rewards to look out for, extra content to come with the episodes, uh, the opportunity to interact uh, specifically around the episodes and have, have extra discussions about the stories, all this sort of stuff and more. Uh, if you head over to therulebook.xyz and follow the link at the top that says support the rulebook, therulebook.xyz and the link at the top. The other thing that it'd be great if you could do is uh, get in touch on social media at Rulebook Podcast on Twitter and uh, search for the Rulebook Podcast on Facebook. This episode is a little bit different. This is a first person narrative story, and the first person that I'm talking about is me. So this is an account of a true um, story that happened uh, in the course of my work. I was working um, in the middle of the country in Australia in uh, the desert for the Aboriginal Legal Service. And uh, this is just an experience that I had that I decided to write a story about and subsequently commit to audio form. Um, I was lucky enough to ha- to win an award in uh competition in Australia here called Audiocraft with this piece very recently and that motivated me to maybe get it out to you and um, and hopefully you'll love it as well. I'm really proud of the, the work and uh, I think that I think that it tells an important story anyway. Enough me talk. I'm James Milson and this is the rule book. The heat was a physical presence, an invisible dry fog. Bike rides to the pool were bookended by cold showers at home. Each morning I watered my veggie garden and by midday it had wilted. Half a dozen prison guards were huddled by a bar fridge, slathering pure white bread with a atomic yellow margarine. I heard and smelled the sizzle and ooze of full-fat cheese between the steady jaws of their George Foreman grill. The guards didn't seem to notice I was there. I remembered how my parents used to prepare miniature toasted sandwiches which they would carefully load onto mouse traps back home in Victoria. The smell permeated the cells beneath the courthouse. I pictured it like a cartoon, a translucent, wispy cloud floating across the noses of the prisoners, a couple of dozen men and women, exclusively Aboriginal. Ricky Drake, I projected in the hope the name might find an ear. Though busy with soft porn and tabloid newspapers, one of the guards managed to rise slowly from his chair. He walked past me, past a cell packed with what must have been twenty men, huddled between concrete benches, eagerly waiting for a lawyer, 
and then he paused at the door of the next cell. He peered in through the thick, greasy, scratched glass. He squinted through his own reflection into the dimly lit cell. He's been playing up, your fella, the guard grunted, his eyes to the floor. Another guard threw a ring full of Western movie prop keys in our direction. They hit the cell door and dropped to the floor. They were keys you could lasso with your shoelace, free yourself while the guard slept and escape on the sheriff's horse to rustle some more cattle. The last key the guard tried worked, and Ricky Drake emerged smiling from the darkness. His skin was a deep dark brown, and his hair was thick with wild, tangled curls. He had a carefully maintained moustache. In contrast, he wore a loose-hanging lycra t-shirt, perhaps intended for a much larger cyclist, and sagging basketball shorts. "'What should I call you?' I asked. I was the duke of all things appropriate. He screwed up his face, confused. I was speaking my first language. Not his. "'What do you like to be called?' I asked again, rephrasing slightly. He made the same face, but issued a two-word reply. "'No phone.' He said it in a matter-of-fact way, with his hand in a fist, but with the thumb and pinky extended. "'What's your name, though?' I asked again, and waited. I prompted him. "'It's Ricky, right?' He agreed, with surprising exuberance. I ran my finger down the pages of Ricky's criminal history, which wasn't brief. Domestic violence traversed each page. Breaching intervention orders, assaults, weapons charges, trespassing and break-ins. We lobbed back and forth for a few minutes as I read aloud the police case against him. He heard me accuse him of crimes someone else was accusing him of. Then he denied them. Then he offered to accept responsibility for them, after all. And then Ricky said something strange. I wrote it down, word for word. She's a scientist. I underlined the third word. Complete confusion. Ricky's eyes were wide, his head cocked slightly to one side. I questioned him, and he repeated the words that she, presumably his girlfriend, was a scientist. This time he clarified, and I recorded his words in my file again. She's a scientist. She can't listen. I'd heard stranger things. I had other clients. So I moved on. I told Ricky, as I would six other young Aboriginal men that morning, that he was probably going to jail. He knew it, same as last time. Guilty, he said a few times. The script from previous court appearances. Ricky was accompanied into the dock by two burly police officers sporting Batman-esque utility belts. Ricky entered his guilty pleas without incident, unlike other clients less rehearsed in the custom. Over the next 30 seconds, Ricky was convicted and sentenced. The magistrate, balding, white, middle-aged, factory moulded, paused for a moment. He asked Ricky whether he understood. Ricky looked into space oblivious to the question.
at the supermarket, pleasantly chilled aisles were balanced against an intolerable Christmas playlist. I saw Ricky swaying dangerously by some snaking, interconnected trolleys, swallowing one another whole. He lunged toward them and kicked. The train snaked, buckled and toppled onto the shining tile floor. A young woman grabbed his shirt and pulled him away, out onto the baking footpath. The arrest numbers had roughly doubled and the cells were disturbingly overcrowded. Ricky smiled as he took his seat in the partition with no door handle on the inside. He knew his place. Ricky volunteered to me that he'd been charged with rape. He wanted to know what sentence he might get. Jail, I said. Almost certainly a long time in jail. Ricky lifted his head slightly and dropped it onto the bench. He lifted his head again, 10 centimetres from the bench this time, and slammed it forcefully back down. Four times, then five, lifting his head higher and slamming it harder, forehead first into the solid stainless steel bench. When I yelled at him to stop, he grew more frenetic. He stood, looked at me, and began driving his fist into the glass between us. The glass shook, passing violent vibrations into the desk I hid behind. I didn't know what he was going through. I didn't know what he'd been through. I couldn't speak his language. He had to speak mine. Ricky raged on. My finger was poised over the call button for the guards waiting down the hall. Their gaze was drawn to the monitors immediately in front of them. Ricky was seized, bound in an excruciating hold, and dragged thrashing back to isolation. Ricky and I reconvened late in the day, and we agreed to be civil. He wanted to tell me a story. He sat straight-backed on a miniature steel stool, which was bolted to the concrete floor beneath him. He and his girlfriend had been together for a long time, he began. I opened my mouth to interrupt, seeking clarification. He paused, looked sternly at me. No more interruptions. And then the words again. I flicked back through my notes. Ricky was speaking to me in English, which was his third language, after the different tongues of his mother, who was from one Aboriginal group, and his father, who was from another, some distance away. She's a scientist, he told me again. And he added the words, she can't listen. I asked Ricky what he meant. I didn't understand. He repeated the words, she's a scientist. She can't listen. He added to his description, she can't talk anyway. She doesn't listen when you talk to her, you mean. I was desperate. It was clear this was important to him. He agreed. A scientist, I echoed, hoping for clarification. I was testing his patience. He raised his voice, shouted the words again and raised his hands in front of his face. His fingers then formed one shape, then another, and they moved and formed another. And then it clicked. I wrote in my notes before I said anything, as if to preserve the comprehension so as not to lose it again. Ricky spoke before I could. He told me she makes signs as he continued with his demonstration. I underlined my note. S-I-G-N-T-I-S-T was the term he'd coined. 
We were underground, surrounded by concrete and reinforced glass. Ricky was talking to a lawyer he didn't know from a place he'd never been to in his third language about a girlfriend he couldn't communicate with at all. She couldn't speak. She couldn't hear him. And I just hadn't listened. Thank you for listening to this story. The story is called First Language, and it's a story that, as I mentioned, I wrote. It's on the uh, basis of something that happened to me. Uh, so it's a true story, um, and it was scored by me as well. Scored as a matter of trivia in the same Airbnb apartment where you heard me interviewing uh, the Swedish young political campaigner for the previous episode of this podcast. Anyway, once again, if you'd like to support the rule book, head to the website therulebook.xyz, follow the support the rule book link and uh, subscribe on Patreon uh, for extra content and uh, etc. If you'd like to get in touch at Rulebook Podcast on Twitter, find me on Facebook or the internet will guide you. Thank you. Studio.